listen to Please Leave Podcast, home to stories that haunt. These stories may contain graphic depictions of violence or explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. The woman driving the mail van pulled up in front of the nearly 200-year-old cottage and let the engine idle as she turned to me. I really hope I can make it out of here, she mumbled and looked back over her shoulder at the rocky and potholed stretch of mud, masquerading as a road that we'd taken for at least a half of a mile to get to the house. Yeah, uh, good luck? I responded weakly and slinked out of the van before she could unleash the verbal abuse I deserved for dragging her out there. I reached back over the seat and handed her a wad of money for her trouble, then gave her an uncomfortable smile and closed the door. I retrieved my bags and a massive cooler from the back of the van, then turned to survey the cottage. It could have been the stand of moss-laden trees that grew almost horizontally out of the cliff next to it, or the massive pile of boulders clustered around the perimeter. But the cottage very much appeared to be an almost lopsided and exceedingly charming location in a Grimm's fairy tale. This is the home where jilted witches ate kidnapped children and stirred potion-filled cauldrons and played music only the devil could hear, or whatever it is witches do in their free time. I'd been struggling with my next novel for a very, very, very long time. The amount of time that had lapsed since I'd been paid for a book was verging on dangerous, and my home, my assets, not to mention my relationships with my agent and publisher, were all about to implode. My marriage was long gone, but looking back, I think it had been doomed from the start. I'd met her after I'd already become famous, and her motives for marrying me became clear pretty quickly. I'd extended my deadline for the novel by just over five years, which I'm positive is a record. I'm not sure if it's the success of my first three novels, or my natural charisma, or a combination of both, that have kept me alive this long. But my time is up, and so this novel has to emerge in the next two months, or I'm done for. In a final attempt to extract this godforsaken story, I reached the most remote destination in New Zealand, which seemed like the most appropriate setting to finish a novel, and landed on a tiny coastal town that had a higher population of sheepdogs than people. From there, I scoured old backpacking message boards to find the most remote home in the most remote part of the country and discovered this beautiful relic, which can only be accessed by coordinating with the mail van that does its rounds through the area once a month, and I knew I'd found the place. I used the last of my savings to rent the cottage for two months and then fly first class from my home in New York City. A more prudent person would have flown coach, but if I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down sipping complimentary Verve Clicquot. I wanted to be absolutely stranded for two months. I didn't want any distractions or modern conveniences 
or easy ways in or out or bars or theaters or any of the other things that had been keeping me from finishing this novel for almost seven years. I just want it to be a showdown between me and my brain, so I can either write the much-anticipated New York Times bestseller that I know I have in me, or pack up my career as a celebrated novelist once and for all. I had a walkie-talkie I could use in case of emergencies, but otherwise it was just me, the rocks, and the woods, and my stubborn mind. The cottage is a historic family home owned by a man who lives in London, and he's updated enough that I won't have to cook on an open fire, but there is no Wi-Fi, no real cell service, no modern conveniences beyond a stove and a microwave. It's just me and the ghostly remnants of the spells the witches chanted between the four walls centuries ago. The inside of the house has surprisingly high ceilings, an enormous stone fireplace, and the house was constructed of wood from floor to ceiling. I started by making a fire in the fireplace to take the damp chill out of the air, and then unloaded the groceries I'd brought with me. I'd packed basic, non-perishable food that would last the entire two months, and as I unloaded it all, I couldn't help but feel a pang of uncertainty that it was enough to last me. I shook off the feeling, as I've never been a big eater anyway, and then dragged my bags up the stairs to unpack. There were three bedrooms, and I chose the largest with a view of the rolling green hills that seemed to stretch into infinity. The bed was firm and somewhat lumpy, but I was grateful for it because it meant I was less likely to languish under the covers all morning and delay the work that needed to be done. I found a small desk in one of the bedrooms and brought it downstairs to set up next to the fireplace. I angled it so that I could easily see out of one of the small windows, and then unpacked my laptop and lucky mug that I always kept to the right of my computer and used to drink my afternoon tea on days that I was working. It was getting late in the day, so I made myself a simple dinner of beans on toast and saved half of the beans for breakfast the next day. I decided to start writing first thing in the morning as a fresh start in my new location and so retired to my lumpy bed to read a bit before drifting off to sleep. I woke up several hours later and was shivering, blanketless on the hard floor of the room. My body was facing the bed and I was eye level with the bed skirt, which was rippling softly in the spot directly in front of my face as if someone was blowing on it from the other side. I instinctively started to reach my hand toward the fabric to reveal what was making it move, but then snatched my hand back to my body as I realized that I would rather not know. If there was some sort of rodent nesting under the bed, it could wait until the morning. If I had to rehome a critter in the middle of the night, in the cold woods, I knew I'd never get back to sleep and would screw up my first day of writing, which felt like a terrible way to kick off my retreat. I wasn't too concerned about waking up on the floor, as I'd been sleepwalking my entire life and had woken up in much stranger places. So I studied the gentle movement of the fabric for another moment before I pulled myself upright to get back into bed. I sort of leapt into bed to avoid the nibbling teeth of cottage-dwelling vermin, snuggled back under the covers, and willed myself back to sleep. 
Part of the reason that it's taken me so long to finish this book is that I was diagnosed with ADHD as an adult. And while medication helps, my brain is still my brain, and it has real fucked up priorities when it comes to what thoughts and experiences it will hang on to into infinity. And the information that it is more than happy to dump the second the moment has passed. As a result, I'd somehow completely forgotten about the rodent under my bed by the time I woke up the next morning, and I was singularly fixated on starting writing first thing. I had a renewed energy in my secluded cottage, and had an overwhelming feeling of optimism as I brewed myself some strong coffee and enjoyed the way the morning light looked on the living room walls. Is the light different? on the other side of the world. I amused myself, and then took that uncharacteristically whimsical thought as a good sign that my brain was primed and ready for a serious writing session. I made myself some beans on toast, and the second I had finished my breakfast, I poured another cup of coffee and took a seat at my new desk to seize the day, and finally put the novel to rest. And then I sat there and stared for two and a half hours. I typed a few weak sentences in that time, but then deleted them, and then poked around in my notes to see if anything sparked in my brain, but there was still nothing. There were no brilliant, marketable, consumable, star-quality words that I could string together into a sentence. Then that sentence could string together into a paragraph that I could then string together to form my next blockbuster novel. After my last book, my agent informed me that there was a movie studio that was excited to jump on the rights to whatever came next. They had an A++ actor who was a huge fan of mine who had approached them to produce one of my previous novels, and they'd said that it wasn't quite the right story, but they were excited to read whatever I came up with next. They had also said they were willing to pay in advance on the licensing if I was willing to share some pages early on, but I'd never written the pages. Not enough to share, anyway. Eventually, this studio stopped checking in, and the actor slipped from A++ to B-, and the story slinked further and further back into the dark recesses of my mind, and I couldn't see it anymore, even if I squinted. I took a break to take a walk around the property and marveled at exactly how remote the cottage was when I could see it in full daylight. I wasn't even sure how or why they'd built it so far away from civilization, but I guess the need to disappear was stronger than the desire to be practical, and so somehow the absurdly remote homestead had come to be. I circled the small yard twice and then attempted to take a stroll up the road that led away from the house, but it was so uneven I abandoned the idea pretty quickly once it was clear just how easy it would be to sprain my ankle which sounded like a terrible idea in the middle of nowhere. It didn't take long for boredom to send me back inside and back to my desk to stare at the page for another two hours before I finally gave up for the day and retired to the couch to read. Night came pretty quickly in the middle of nowhere, and so I went to bed not long after I ate my dinner since I didn't have a single reason to stay up past dark. I said a prayer to the writing gods, 
that the next day would be better and fell asleep. And just like I had the night before, a few hours after I went to bed, I woke myself up from a dead sleep and was lying cold and uncomfortable on the hardwood floor next to the bed. As soon as my eyes snapped open and registered that I was once again staring straight at the underside of the bed, the bed skirt started rippling as if tiny fingers were running along the other side, or a soft stream of air was blowing up from a grate in the floor. I sighed a heavy sigh and mentally kicked myself for getting to investigate the potential infestation the day before. I scooted my body so that I was close enough to the bed to pull up the bed skirt and grasped the thin fabric. A small shiver ran through my body as my fingers wrapped under the cloth and the upper sections of my appendages were suddenly vulnerable to whatever was on the other side. Before I could lose my courage, I lifted up the skirt and there was nothing in my life that could have prepared me for what was waiting on the other side. There wasn't a rat or an open vent under the bed when I pulled back the fabric. There was a full-grown adult woman and her teeth were bared as if she was about to bite something and bite it hard. In the half a second before I dropped the fabric and snatched my hand away and out of range of her awful teeth, I registered that she was a thin, pale woman with perfect skin and black hair and was quite beautiful despite her gallish mouth. Oh, hell no! I shouted and scrambled up onto my feet, down the stairs, out the front door, and into the grave-like stillness of the New Zealand wilderness. I paced and cursed in front of the house for a while, keeping an eye on the gaping front door for any sign of the demented woman who had been hiding under my bed for God knows why and God knows how long. I looked down the long rocky road we'd taken to get to the property and tried to estimate how long it would take me to walk back to the tiny town the mail van had picked me up in. It had taken well over an hour to get there, and I guesstimated that it would take me two or three by foot, maybe longer in the dark. I looked back at the house, which was completely still, and swore a few more times at my limited options. The walkie-talkie, I remembered with a jolt of hope and tentatively crept up to the front door, and then slowly craned my neck to see inside and toward the stairs. The house was completely silent. I couldn't hear the slightest creak or scrape or anything that would indicate that there was in fact a grown human woman hiding under my bed upstairs, or that she was heading toward me in that moment. I located the walkie-talkie on the charger on the kitchen counter where I'd left it and then sprinted through the room, grabbed it, and brought it back outside to call someone. As I crossed the threshold of the door and stepped back into the cold air, it registered that the walkie-talkie in my hand didn't feel quite right, and my heart sank. It felt very light, like a child's toy, and not like something that was capable of transmitting a distress call over a thousand miles, as was advertised when I'd rented it. I guess I'd been too distracted, or jet-lagged, when I picked it up, but when I flipped it open and opened the small compartment where the rechargeable battery pack should be, it was empty. Oh, come on! I shouted to the sky. You've got to be kidding me! 
I slumped over a bit, feeling the useless weight of the walkie-talkie in my hand, and gave a half-glance to the house, which was as calm and still as it had been since I'd arrived. I also realized my teeth were chattering from standing in the cold in my light pajamas for too long, and so with no other viable option, I headed back inside. Once I was back in the house, I weighed my options again, and wondered if maybe I'd simply dreamt the woman in the first place. I chuckled a bit, imagined calling an emergency team to come rescue me from the empty underside of the bed, but it was very plausible as I thought about it more. It had happened before that I'd woken up in the middle of a sleepwalk, and so the thin veil between what I'd been dreaming about and what was reality was fuzzy for a moment and it took me several minutes to realize what was happening. I was fully awake at that point, and the idea of checking under the bed didn't exactly thrill me, but it was the only way I'd be able to put my mind at ease and maybe get a couple more hours of sleep that night. And even if there was a woman under my bed, I was a very strong individual, and so I was pretty sure I could subdue her if I needed to, and then I could hike out for help in the morning. I found an extra-large flashlight to use as a weapon if it came down to it, and slowly ascended the stairs, keeping an ear out for the sound of a wild woman with plans to ambush me on my way up. I paused again at the top of the stairs, and when I still didn't hear a single sound, I creeped into my bedroom with the posture of an old-timey villain in a silent film. The room was so still that it was suddenly preposterous to me that a woman could be hiding under the bed, and so I strode toward it before I could lose my nerve, grasped the bed skirt for the second time that night, and peeled back. And there she was. She was perfectly still, with her arms straight at her sides, but the second she saw me, she started wiggling ever so slightly toward me, and her mouth opened as if she was about to take a big bite of something. I stared in horror for a couple of seconds as she very slowly attempted to shimmy toward me, and her mouth opened and closed like a newborn baby bird in slow motion. Ah, God, I said but it came out as more of a disgusted gurgling sound as I scrambled out of the room for the second time that night, slammed the door behind me, and rushed into the room next door to find something to barricade it. There was an enormous wooden wardrobe in one corner of the bedroom, and so I dragged it in front of the door and then shook both sides to confirm it was sturdy enough to keep the very small and slow-moving woman inside. When I felt fairly confident that she was confined to the room, I went back downstairs in a disheveled flurry of limbs and swear words and shivers. I paced around the living room for a while, keeping an ear on the upstairs for any sign of movement, but once again the only sound in the house was the slap of my bare feet on the hardwood below me. Eventually I calmed down enough to sit on the couch and sat hunched over with my legs bobbing up and down in the restless fashion of a very stressed-out person. After about an hour, my heart rate had slowed to a more normal rhythm, and my legs had returned to their resting state, and so I slid back on the couch to keep watch in a more comfortable position. I'm not sure how long I stayed up, watching for any sign of the bony intruder at the top of the stairs, but eventually I nodded off. 
When I woke up, the sun was streaming through the windows, and I was on my back on the couch with my right arm splayed out in a 90-degree angle. It took me a moment to register what was happening, but there was a soft sucking sound in the room and a wet tingling sensation on the tip of my finger. A second later, I felt my consciousness fully slam back into my body and looked to my right, where the woman was softly sucking on the tip of my finger and intermittently attempting little nibbles like a puppy does when you scratch its butt in a specific place. Her body was stretched out behind her, and she looked to be holding her upper body upright with just her core muscles because her arms were slack at her side. I let out a primal-sounding scream and clambered up and over the back of the couch, cradling my hand like the finger had been severed rather than just suckled. I backed into the corner of the kitchen where I could still see the woman, who seemed to slump down as soon as I was a couple feet away from her. After a couple of seconds, she started to slowly wiggle like she had the night before, and with her face down and arms by her side, she started to move toward me like a dysfunctional and extremely slow-moving snake. I watched her for a couple of minutes, fully fixated on her strange movements and the way she was determined to reach me, despite the fact her arms and legs didn't seem to work. Who the fuck are you? I demanded and puffed up slightly. She didn't say a word and instead continued her slow slither toward the kitchen. She'd maybe moved a half an inch in the five minutes I'd been watching her, but she continued, undeterred. And what the fuck are you doing? I asked with my voice full of genuine curiosity. It was becoming clear as I watched the woman, who was at least half my size, wiggle mindlessly and soundlessly toward me that, while she was extremely unsettling, I wasn't sure that she was much of a threat. If she'd wanted to hurt me, she would have done so while I slept, rather than just lapping at my pointer finger. I took a couple of tentative steps towards her, and she didn't react. I took several more steps, and she just kept on wriggling across the room. It wasn't until I was just over a foot away from her that she finally lifted her head in my direction and started snapping her jaws at me in slow motion, like she'd done the night before. She seemed to want to bite me, but didn't have the strength to accomplish her goal, and even when I took another half-step toward her, she didn't lurch toward me to make contact. There was also a brief sensation that passed over me that I knew her from somewhere. Something about her delicate features and deep-set eyes was familiar, but I shook it off as she went back to being just a useless wraith on my living room floor. As her jaws opened and snapped shut over and over again, I simply stepped over her prone body and moved to the other side of the room to watch her some more. As soon as I'd moved past her, her face slumped back to the ground, and she ever so slowly started to maneuver her body so that her head was pointed in my direction again, and she could pursue me on the other side of the room. Are, are you hungry? I asked the woman, who responded by shimmying two centimeters towards me. You're hungry, aren't you? 
I said as more of a statement than a question. As I watched the woman's weird trek across the living room, my mind wandered back to a great short story I'd read in college about a starving spirit that was wandering the earth trying to quench its hunger but was doomed to remain ravenous for eternity. The story had some moral lesson about being content with what you've got, but I was haunted by the thought of a permanent hunger. The idea of feeding and feeding and never feeling full was something that horrified me, but that I could also relate to. I was someone who was rarely satisfied by my lot in life, and so I could very easily understand the plight of the hungry ghost. Let's, um, let's see what we've got for you to eat. I crossed the room again toward the kitchen and started to take inventory of my cabinets out loud. We've got got some uh, crackers, beans, creamy peanut butter. I had a special order from the States, I said and glanced towards her. Once again, she had started to slow turn to follow me into the kitchen, and I turned back to the cabinet. I, I, I could make you some pasta, but uh, that seems like a lot of work. Mm. Oh, I know, uh, canned meat. I bet a... Weird broad like you would would love a little bit of meat. I pulled the can of corned beef out of the cabinet and presented it to her proudly. This will get you to leave me alone, I said, and opened the offensive-smelling container. I spooned a small portion into a bowl like one would do for a pet. I paused to make a plan for myself for the rest of the day and realized it was already 2 p.m., so the day had already more or less been wasted. I decided to make myself a peanut butter sandwich and then retreat upstairs while my hungry roommate enjoyed her meat. I'd spend the afternoon showering and reading and maybe doing a little writing if I could get into the zone, which I very much doubted I could, but I'd give it a shot. I'd reassess the situation with my new ghost friend in the morning, but I was already coming to the conclusion that we'd just have to make it work for two months. She seemed like more of an annoyance than a threat, and if I left the cottage, I'd have wasted an enormous amount of time and money, and I really needed to do what I'd come to do, or I'd be facing the end of my career, homelessness, and whatever else came along with being washed up and broke. I placed the bowl in the farthest corner of the room in hopes that it would distract her all night and keep her as far away from me as possible while I slept. I spent the rest of the night kicking myself that I hadn't brought any type of Wi-Fi hotspot with me because I desperately wanted to research the mythology of the place I was staying in and see if I could get to the bottom of the zombie spirit woman who was writhing around on the first floor of my vacation rental. I conjured up everything I knew about Polynesian mythology and it wasn't much. I did know that the Maori have a deep connection with their dead and complicated traditions and beliefs about what happens when a soul passes. But can they get stuck? Surely they can get stuck. Every culture has ghosts, right? Do the Maori have hungry ghosts or is that primarily a Buddhist concept? 
I'd also heard that maybe the Maori hadn't actually been the first people to discover New Zealand, and they had actually conquered the people who were here when they arrived. What was their belief system? And were they white? Because the lady in my living room was very clearly white. And, oh my god, did they build this house so far out here to contain an annoying zombie ghost? Is that why it's so hard to get here? It would be weird for them to then list it for short-term rental, but who can blame a person for trying to make a buck, even with an inconvenient ghost infestation? My thoughts raced, and I tried to put the pieces together well into the night, but never got any closer to understanding why I'd found a hungry white woman under my bed the night before. At least she was quiet. She wouldn't distract me from my writing, and holy shit, maybe this was going to help my writing. Nothing like a true paranormal encounter to get the creative juices flowing. My thoughts flowed on and on well into the night. I drifted off sometime around 2 or 3 a.m. and was once again awoken by a soft suckling sensation. But this time, it was at my midsection. My eyes flew open and somehow the woman had made her way up a flight of stairs through my locked door and had propped herself up on the side of my bed to enjoy a little nibble on my side. Oh, come on! I protested and shot out of bed, swiping away the moist spot she'd left to the right of my belly button. Her body immediately went limp and she flopped to the floor like a dead fish. After just a beat, she started to move again, angling her head toward me. I guess you're not a corned beef kind of gal, I said and backed toward the door. But I'll be damned if I let you slowly dissolve me with your sad suckling. I shivered and left the bedroom, locked the door behind me, and dragged the enormous wardrobe in front of it. It was clear I was going to have to live between the two floors and could enjoy relative peace in the time that it took her to travel from one to the other. I glanced at my watch so that I could time her and figure out exactly how long I would have to sleep each night before I'd wake up to her unwanted attention. But what was she hungry for? Human flesh? I scanned my body for the sizable scab that had formed after I'd skinned the hell out of my shin while moving the cooler into the house from the van. I picked it off in one long piece and placed it on a square of Kleenex on the floor near the stairs. In my scientific mind, if the scab was gone when I came back up later, it was my flesh she wanted after. Seems like she would be better equipped with sharp teeth or claws used to consume human flesh if that were the case, but maybe that was part of her curse. She craved human flesh but was too weak and soft to do anything about it. At any rate, I had lost an entire day studying her the day before, so I had some catching up to do. My head was also pounding because I'd been too distracted to make myself coffee the day before, so I brewed an extra strong pot, made myself some crackers and peanut butter, and tried to get to work. But the day was yet another dud. I talked to myself, I paced, I bored holes through my laptop with my eyes, but no words came. I managed a couple of pathetic sentences, but the story remained lodged somewhere inaccessible, always on the horizon like a mirage of my old talents. 
Then, just as the sun started to set outside, I heard the telltale thump of a hungry apparition making her clumsy descent down the stairs. I glanced at my watch, and it had been six and a half hours since I'd left the bedroom, which meant I probably had seven or eight hours to be alone upstairs, because I assumed it would take her longer to climb than it would to descend. Hey, Rumi. I called as the intermittent sounds of rustling fabric and the weight of a semi-human body hitting the floor filled the room. I let her get all the way to the bottom of the stairs, then lured her to the farthest corner of the kitchen before I packed up my laptop and a snack and then retreated upstairs for the night. I checked my scab trap on the landing and it was still perfectly intact and untouched, so human flesh wasn't completely off the table but it seemed less likely that that was what she was pursuing me for. I was a little worn out from my interrupted sleep the night before, so I retired early and set my alarm for seven hours later so I could avoid a rude awakening like the one I'd experienced that morning. And sure enough, my alarm went off seven hours later, and when I sat up in bed, the dresser that I'd pulled in front of the door was shifting slightly from pressure on the other side. A powerful thought entered my mind the second I was awake, as if a remnant from a dream I'd been having had followed me into my waking life to teach me something important. She's hungry for love, I said out loud to myself as it suddenly dawned on me that my ghost was craving my affection. She wasn't trying to eat me, she was trying to love me in her limited physical capacity. Holy shit, I said, and it all became so clear. If I'm being honest, I could also relate to my ghost in that moment because it had been many, many years since I'd experienced pure and unconditional love. I'd met my first wife before I'd written my first book, and she was probably the closest thing I'll ever experience to true love. She loved me for me, and her love was strong and pure and unrelenting, and of course I'd left her for an excruciatingly hot younger woman the second I was famous. And of course the hottie only wanted to be close to me for the money and fame, and that relationship never contained anything remotely resembling love for the 27 short months that had lasted. And everyone who had come into my life since seemed to have an ulterior motive, and again, if I'm being honest, I didn't really mind. My parents were dead, and my relationship with my brother deteriorated once I'd got famous, and everyone else in my orbit was just there because I was so valuable to have around. Even as my star dimmed, there was still some cachet to having a best-selling author at the table, so the invitations never really dried up, and there was always a warm body to press against if I needed one. Jesus Christ, that's sad, I said, and the door swelled open an inch with a deep, scraping sound against the floor. And not only had I not loved another person in at least a decade, I'd also stopped loving my writing somewhere along the way. When I was in college and grad school, the words poured out of me as easy as taking a bath because they had been such an integral part of my happiness and well-being. The words gave me meaning and purpose and fueled every action and decision I made. 
I was so alive and so in love, and my God, how had I wandered astray? I bolted out of bed and pulled on some sweats and threw open the door and gazed down at my ghost, jiggling in place in the doorway of my bedroom. If I wasn't so absolutely repulsed by you, I'd kiss you, I cried and blew her a kiss before snatching up my laptop and racing to my desk. I paced as I waited for the coffee to brew, my fingers almost physically burning with the need to make contact with my keyboard, and then I wrote, holy shit, I wrote, I didn't eat, I barely peed, I barely breathed, I just wrote. The words rushed out of me in a stream that was almost too persistent to keep up with. I was feverish as I pounded out the sentences, and then paragraphs, and then pages. Oh, God. It had been so long since I'd completed a page, let alone pages. Pure and ecstatic love filled my body, and I poured it back into my work, cultivating the story with uncontaminated truths. I had no idea were inside of me. I had no idea I was capable of so much authenticity and insight, and the simplicity of the composition gave me the chills. This was going to be my masterpiece. I didn't stop writing until I felt the gentle scrape of teeth against my ankle bone, and I'd been so much in the zone that I hadn't even heard my roomie slamming down the stairs. I ruffled her hair affectionately and headed up to my bedroom, where I continued to write well into the night. I didn't even need to set my alarm because I only fell asleep long enough to feel refreshed and then opened my laptop, which I'd taken to bed with me, and started writing again. Eventually my head started to pound, indicating that I couldn't go much longer without coffee and I looked at my watch for the first time that morning and realized that it had been well over eight hours since I'd left my ghost downstairs. Ghosty? I called and listened for her telltale shuffle. But the house was silent. My heart sank a bit, and I immediately got up to investigate, afraid that she'd gotten stuck or wandered off once I stopped paying attention to her. She'd become a sort of good luck charm, like the special pen Paul Sheldon used in Misery, and I really hoped she was still around. I bounded down the stairs, and there she was, face down and almost completely still, just a couple of feet away from the place I'd left her. Her body was moving ever so slightly back and forth, but there was less urgency in her movement, and she seemed almost peaceful. I walked over to her and rolled her over a bit so I could study her face. There was a new softness to it, and a bit more color, and her teeth barely opened and closed as I held her in the air. I gently placed her back in the position I found her, and brought her a little pillow to rest under her forehead. She gave a little shimmy, which I interpreted as a shimmy of appreciation, and I sat down to contemplate her for a moment. Her face looked more full, like the face of a woman who had a nice meal and maybe a glass of wine, and I wondered if my love for the book was feeding her. She didn't need me to love her. She needed me to love my work. Was she a physical manifestation of my soul? 
my soul that had been lost without a true connection to its purpose. I'd been starving, and I didn't know it, and something about this island had brought her to life to show me. I threw open the door of the cottage and marveled at the enchanted place I'd been summoned to. A tear fell down my cheek as I whispered thanks to the ancestors and ancient and unseen powers who had been called upon to reconnect me with my soul's purpose. I breathed in a deep breath of gratitude and went back to work. Two months flew by after that. I affectionately started referring to the ghost as Lilith, because I remembered learning that Lilith had been a sort of she-demon in the Bible. I arranged Lilith in a more comfortable position on the rug near the couch, and she remained in that place for the rest of the time that I was there. I closed her eyes so she could enjoy some peace, and the more I wrote, the healthier she looked. Her face filled out and her hair seemed to shine. Her color went from porcelain white to a peachy olive, and she was the perfect companion while I completed my opus. I finished the novel three days before the mail van was scheduled to come and collect me. I opened the very expensive bottle of scotch that I always drank when a book was done and poured a glass for myself and Lilith to celebrate with. Lilith remained prone but peaceful on the floor, and I spent the last two days of my retreat pouring my heart out to her and processing the changes in my life and personality during my adulthood. I mourned the young man who had so much life to live and celebrated my new lease on things and the opportunity she'd given me to truly live again. I recalled all of the things that had really mattered to me in my early years and shed tears for the mistakes I'd made along the way. I... I can never repay you, Lilith, I said to her as I crouched next to her on my last day and affectionately stroked her hair. I hate to leave you here, but I hope you've found peace and can move on. I'll research a shaman or something when I get home and we'll, and we'll send someone to help you transition to the afterlife. I promise. I said, and tears filled my eyes as I said goodbye. The mail truck rumbled up the drive a few minutes later, and I said a final goodbye to the home and the entity that had changed my life forever and for the better. The novel was a runway hit. It broke records for sales and days at number one on the bestsellers list. My phone and email were packed with offers for movie deals, TV appearances, licensing opportunities, even lines of apparel and home goods. I was back, and my success was meteoric. Top critics made comparisons to Hemingway and Tolstoy, and my fame rivaled Stephen King and Jack Kerouac. I had officially, and firmly, arrived. The first year and a half were a blur of press junkets and parties and events and awards. I flew all over the world speaking to sold-out crowds, negotiating deals, and experiencing a celebrity that very few ever get to achieve. There were private islands, illicit drugs, endless luxury, and constant praise. My previous fame had been glorious, but 
It had been child's play to the world I suddenly had access to. I was validating and intoxicating, and I felt like my feet would never touch the ground again. Then, after a particularly long stretch on the road, my agent scheduled a week off at home for me to regroup and decompress before production started on the first feature film of four that had been developed based on the book. I had also purchased a much larger apartment and so needed to get organized before the movers came in a week to help me upgrade to my superior new plane of existence. I walked into my old condo and almost felt back from the shock of how dull and mundane it suddenly looked to me. I'd bought it for several million dollars after my second novel was such a success, but after so many months of living the good life, It looked shabby and underwhelming from my new perspective. I said a silent prayer of thanks that it would be the last time I would be returning to such an uninteresting place and set to work on a pile of mail that had accumulated since I'd been gone. I was half reading a letter from my brother that explained that an aunt had fallen very ill and he was imploring me to reach out to her before it was too late when I heard a very distinct slapping sound coming from inside my office. Hello? I called out and wondered if the cleaning crew had come early by accident. I was greeted with another thick slap and then a grunt and I dropped the letter and pulled out the largest knife in the knife block on the kitchen island. My heart started racing as I inched towards the office door and the sounds of supplies being knocked over and loud, fleshy smacks intensified the closer I got. I took a deep breath and threw the door open and gasped. Lilith! I almost screamed as her mammoth, bulbous form shuffled around to face me. Her face was extremely beautiful now. Her features were fully formed, and her eyes were focused and bright above her delicately upturned nose. But her body was massive and grotesque, and I transformed into a violent heap of undulating flesh. Her arms and legs were more like long, segmented fins, and the right one slammed down on my concrete floor as our eyes locked and she seemed to smile at me. Her body heaved towards me, suddenly strong and agile considering its hulking mass. I held her gaze for a moment more, and right before I slammed the door and locked it with my master key, I was overcome with a long-buried memory of a beautiful woman from my past. Oh my god, I breathed out and steadied myself against the wall, and it all came into focus. I knew her. I knew Lilith in real life, and had spent one brief and complicated night with her many years before. I piled as many pieces of heavy furniture as I could fit in front of the office door and then rushed to unpack my laptop as I racked my brain for the woman's real name. I had attended an exclusive writer's conference in London right before my first novel was published. I had built a real buzz for myself after a book of the short stories I'd written in grad school had won several awards 
and so I'd been invited to the conference to meet some of my heroes and contemporaries, and she'd been one of them. We'd spent the afternoon hotly debating in one of the breakout groups, and had trailed out of the room together, arguing flirtatiously as we walked to the next session. When we were done with the activities for the day, she told me that she'd lived in London for a semester and invited me to dinner at one of her favorite restaurants in the neighborhood. Dinner turned into drinks, which turned into an extended stroll along the river, and then more drinks, and then she accepted an invitation back to my hotel room. Things had taken a turn once we were in my room, and she suddenly realized exactly how intoxicated and tired she was. I begged her to have another drink with me, and she refused, and insisted that she needed to get back to her hotel and sober up a bit. I argued and cajoled, and after a few minutes, the whiskey I'd been drinking all night fully kicked in, and before I knew it, I was raging. Instead of doing the right thing and inviting her to sleep on the settee in my hotel room or walking her back to hers, I called her a string of unkind and inappropriate names and then huffed off to lock myself in the bathroom. When I emerged a few minutes later, my hotel room door was open and she was gone. And rather than run after her to make sure she was okay, I fell into my bed and passed out almost immediately. She wasn't at the conference the next day, and I wrote her off as hungover, especially considering how hard it had been for me to pull it together enough to attend myself. She didn't show up the next two days either, but I didn't think much of it, because I'd caught the eye of an attractive redhead and she distracted me until it was time to head back to the U.S. Delilah Moriarty. I said out loud as the name tag she'd been wearing when I met her came into focus in my memory. She'd accidentally worn it to dinner and it had become a joke between us that required me to say her full name over and over after pretending to need the name tag to remember who she was. I typed the name into the search bar on my laptop and was blown back by what came up. Delilah hadn't skipped the rest of the conference because she was too hungover. She'd missed it because she was dead. According to several news articles that I pulled up in rapid succession, after she'd left the hotel room that night, wasted and alone, she'd been robbed and stabbed to death in an alley next to the building she'd been staying in, and had been discovered by a trash collector the next morning. As I tried to process what I was reading, memories of our conversations that night flooded back. As competitive and hungry as I'd been to succeed as a writer, she'd been even hungrier and more competitive. Cutthroat, even. We'd bonded over the ways we'd managed to stand out from our peers and shared stories of how we had gotten ahead by any means necessary. She laughed as she described sabotaging the star student in her master's class by framing her for cheating. Once the girl was expelled... Delilah became the celebrated writer at her university and was invited to attend the events reserved for the elite students and staff. The more drunk we got, the more sordid our tales became, and she admitted sleeping with professors, spilling water on laptops, resenting alarms on finals days. You name it, she'd done it. And I 
loved it. I was far from innocent when it came to pursuing my career. I had a wildly high body count of people that I'd left in my wake as my star had risen. There hadn't been a single person, including my wife and my brother, who had been spared as I did anything and everything I needed to do to get eyes on my writing and money in my bank account. I snapped back to reality as a credenza crashed down from the top of the pile of furniture I'd shoved in front of my door. My ghost was Delilah, and she hadn't been hungry for love. She'd been hungry for fame. Yes, I'd loved writing when I was a young author, but I hadn't loved it because it was my calling. I'd loved it because of the attention it brought to me. Ever since I had been very small, my words had been a tool to get attention, to be lauded and adored and elevated over others. And I loved the way it felt. My God, how I loved fame. And Delilah did too. She craved it even more than I did, and then her life was cut short and the spotlight shut off and somehow I'd brought her back and fed her, and now what the fuck was I supposed to do? I furiously googled hungry ghosts and scanned the pages that came up as quickly as humanly possible. Hungry ghosts were most commonly found in Buddhist lore, but were mentioned in other eastern countries as well, including the Philippines. My mother's father was from the Philippines, but he died before I was born, and so I had absolutely no ties to the country or traditions, and laughed out loud that my long-abandoned one-quarter Filipino heritage could conjure a hungry ghost. One common thread in all the mythologies that I read was that the spirits were commonly bad people while they were alive and so were cursed to wander the earth in torment by unfulfilled cravings that related to whatever had been cut short by their passing. Hungry ghosts may endlessly seek particular objects, emotions, or people. Those things that obsessed them or caused them to commit bad deeds when they were living, riches, gems, children, even fear, or the vitality of the living. I read out loud as the door of my office groaned under Delilah's weight. Sometimes they seek food or drink or human flesh. Sometimes they want to possess the weak-willed and inhabit their bodies in place of their souls. You motherfucker! I screamed at the succubus who was moments away from freeing herself from the confines of my office. But it was my fault. Well, mine and hers. I had essentially killed Delilah, then somehow conjured her, then fed her with the promise of my fame on the horizon, and then abandoned her again. The more famous I got, the stronger she got. And it had taken her a couple of years to travel from the other side of the world, but she'd found me. And now what? Would she consume my flesh? Would she continue to feed on my fame? Would we live in some sort of fucked up symbiosis where she undulated in my infinity pool while I continued to feed her with my fame? If the fame dried up, would she then eat me or other people? Would I need to bring her human sacrifices to save myself? Or was she here for my soul? 
Had I made her powerful enough to take my place in my body and exile my soul to roam the earth, starving and alone, then who would conjure me? I was a monster of my own making, and so how could the curse continue? I typed the question into my laptop with shaking hands, misspelling every word, and missing the return button twice. My computer whirred for a moment before the search results appeared, but they were immediately snatched from my view as an enormous, pulsating limb crashed down from above and snapped my computer in two. was written by Courtney Eck and narrated by Nicholas Richardson. Our Patreon is officially live, so for more stories that haunt and a behind-the-scenes look at what we do and why we do it, please join our Patreon at patreon slash pleaseleavepod. Please follow Please Leave on Facebook and Instagram at pleaseleavepod. Our email is pleaseleavepod at gmail.com and our website is pleaseleavepod.com. This has been a Two Penguins Media Production. Quack.